it's, uh, it's, it's always a privilege to, to come on Sunday morning and to worship and to praise the Lord together and to gather as a community, as, uh, as God's church. Uh, and we do so in freedom. We do so in a country where it's safe. We do so in a society that doesn't oppose us. And uh, this morning, I'm just reminded of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are around the world. And many gather together, um, and it's not safe. And they're not sure what's going to happen to them, but they still are willing to gather because for them it is so important to be together, to encourage one another, to lift each other up. Um, Christianity is not an individual, it's not just an individual experience, it's very much a corporate experience as well, and we need each other and we need the church. And um, people around the world, Christians around the world gather, and, uh, and it's not safe for them, and yet they still do it. I don't know about you, but I didn't think about my safety this morning. It's, uh, it's not that big of a deal. And coming to church, I know that nothing's going to happen to us. Um, but I think that's something that sometimes we can take for granted. And when I go across the world and I travel and I see the churches that meet, some of them, it's pretty sketchy. You know, I show up in a vehicle and we park right in front of the house that we're meeting and we got to shoot, I got to run in there so they don't see the white guy because if they see me, then the church itself is in danger. And many, many churches face opposition and face persecution and yet they still gather and meet because it's so important to be together to encourage one another. And so this morning, I'm grateful to be here with you. Um, I was in India three weeks ago, and so this morning I'm going to take some time to share with you. I think it's been a while since I've had, um, since I've taken a whole Sunday to just talk about what God is doing in India, and so I'm going to take this morning and do that. I'm grateful for my vocation. For those of you who are new who don't know who I am, my name is Chris, and I work, I work here quarter time, so um, a pretty small amount, um, but the majority of my job, the majority of my time is spent working for a ministry called Multination Missions Foundation, and we are a Canadian charity. We're a missions group, and we, we go around the world proclaiming the gospel, and uh, our focus really is supporting national workers, recognizing that it is, it is indigenous workers that are really going to be effective in growing the church and in, um, and in proclaiming the gospel. And I'm grateful for what I get to do because I, I have the privilege of seeing what God is doing globally. And that's not something I take for granted. And so this morning, I, wanna, I want to try and share with you as best that I can and encourage you and inspire you with stories of how God is working around the world, um, specifically today in the country of India. And I'm hoping this morning, and I, I've been praying for this morning, that, that you would be encouraged by the stories that you hear, that you would be inspired, and that maybe you might even be challenged. Um, as you, as you hear stories of, of how your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are living out their faith and the way that the church is growing in such an um, amazing and rapid way. And so I'm excited to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, I brought Noah Dorsey with me. You guys probably knew that. This was the second time that he came along. And the first time he came, he built a great video. And then I brought him again uh, when, I, when, I, when I was there this time around. And he's going to build another video for us. It's going to be a documentary on the church planting movement and upon the, the school that we are running there. And so Noah's not here this morning, unfortunately, but he did build a little three-minute teaser for us. And so I want to show it to you before I get started so that you get a sense of the sights and the sounds of what India is like and what the church is like there. So we're going to queue it up here. We just, uh, we just uh, continue to pray for the people to come in the church to believe in Jesus. For 21, 21 days, we fasted and prayed for uh, the people, for the people who have uh, the witchcraft, the, they're doing witchcraft. And after six months, people started to... The same people who 
were using witchcraft upon other people, they just started to come in the church. And we got answered our prayers and fasting. So after, after those days, we, uh, we have uh, the 50 families and uh, 50 people in our uh, church now. So we have our churches which we are conducting at home. So the size of church is 200 people, 250 people. 300 people. In North India, right now, we are working with 35 church planters. All these nine states of North India. Sometimes they will come our church. They will come to the people who come to our church. They will go to the people. They will say, don't go to the church. They, uh, that's not our religion. That's the religion of the foreign people. I Acts it says that the, the, the church members who are scattered because of persecution, they went around and preached the gospel in the early church. And so also, whether there is persecution or not, even though right now in India, um, it is going to be uh, more because of the present the Hindu religious government. But still, we are not afraid of that, but we are dedicated to understand and follow God's mission and in us and through us. We just continue to pray for the people to come in the church. Noah does great work. I wish he was here that we could give him a hand, but uh, when we have the documentary ready, we'll certainly uh, show it. I love traveling with Noah. He's, uh, wh whatever we're doing, he's always behind a big camera, and he's always got a crowd around him because most people there haven't seen such a fancy camera. And so uh, it's great. And I love the way that Noah uses the gifts that God has given him uh, to serve and to help uh, the mission and the ministry. And uh, it was really great to travel with him and for the gifts that he has and the way that he, that he uses them for God's glory. I want to show you some statistics here. I've got it titled The Unfinished Task. This is what's, uh, this is what's going on in India. 
India has 1.3 billion people. It's the second largest country in the world next to China. It has 32% of the world's remaining unreached people groups. So 32% of the unreached people groups live primarily in northern India. Uh, India has one-fifth of the world's population. And 90% uh, of them are considered unreached. And to, to be part of the unreached people group is you are a distinct group of people and you don't have access, very little or no access to the Christian gospel, whether it's a church or uh, literature or anything. And so what we're seeing in India right now in the places that we are working is the churches are growing where the churches have never been before. We're planting churches where the church has never existed, where people are hearing the gospel for the very first time. They've never heard the story of Jesus before. They've never heard the good news. And for those that choose to respond, a church is popping up for the very first time in history. And that's the work that is happening there. Uh, the churches are pretty well established in the cities, but still over 70% of the Indian population lives outside of the cities. And the churches tend to concentrate in, in, um, in the city areas, but they don't think a lot about going out into the rural villages. And so we work with grassroots pastors who are passionate about getting out into the villages, getting out to the places where people have not heard, and planting churches where churches have not existed before. I went to India for the very first time five years ago in 2014, and I went, I, I went to some churches, and they were tiny. There was like, basically, it's like one or two families hear the good news, and they accept Christ, and then they start a church in their home. And I went to one of those churches, and there was about 20 people there. And I just thought to myself, how in the world is this church going to grow? How is this church going to survive? And I go back six months later, and there's 50 people there. And I go back six months later, and there's over 150 people there. And now, five years later, it's one of the larger churches that, that I get to visit. And so the church is growing rapidly in places where the church has never existed before. So even though northern India is a very, it is the most unreached area of the world, that area, the, the, the density of the population and how many people have not heard, Yet there is this incredible uh, movement of God happening right there. And every time I go, I am so excited and inspired by what God is doing. Five years ago, when I went to India, we visited three church planters. They were the only three church planters that we supported our organization. And I went just to get a sense of what God's doing in India and to support them and to encourage them and um, just to see what we could do. And now, uh, this was my seventh trip, and we support 53 national indigenous workers, and they're all church planters, and most of them are working in areas that are unreached, or they were unreached before they went there. And so we train these guys up, uh, provide some schooling for them, and then we send them out, and most of them go back to villages where they grew up, or villages that they knew of, and they are the first Christians, and they just start praying, and they start preaching, and churches start growing, and it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing to be around. So I want to tell you just a few stories this morning, and give you a few examples. So this is a gathering of new Christians, and it's not really a church. It's what they call a cottage prayer meeting. So their churches, they meet kind of like what we do typically on a Sunday morning. Uh, but throughout the week, they're, they're meeting in homes. And so this is a home, a typical home. It's like one big room, and they just squeeze as many people as they possibly can into this home. This is what the majority of the churches look like. Church, they don't have church buildings there. I think in the whole network that I visit, I think there's two or three actual church buildings, and the rest they just meet in homes. Um, and they pack out the homes until they're too big, and then they get up on the roof until they're too big, and then they start spreading out. Like, it's just, it, it's incredible how they gather together. So at these cottage prayer meetings... Um, a local church member 
is in his village or her village and invites family and friends and neighbors to come and to hear the gospel. And because they have a good reputation in the community, uh, people, family, friends, neighbors come. And then the pastor comes and the pastor comes with his worship band and they basically do church. It's, it looks quite similar. There's a lot of loud worship, a lot of praying, and the pastor gets up and he preaches and then he prays over people. And, th and this is their strategy for evangelism is that the local church people, they take ownership on evangelism and through their reputation and through their impact in their society, they invite family and friends into their home. They open up their home. They invite their pastor over. And this is how the church is growing so fast. It's not just the job of the pastor to go door to door and to spread the gospel. As soon as people become Christians, they are compelled to share the good news with their own communities. And so there's so much talk about about spreading the gospel and sharing this faith because it is such good news and that's why the church is spreading so quickly. This is another cottage prayer meeting and this one happens outside. So many of the churches or many of the homes, uh, there's actually an outside courtyard before you enter in and so we meet out there if, if you're in a community where it's safe and you're allowed to do that. So I actually far prefer this because um, it's just not so hot. I actually get a little bit of a breeze. In those rooms, it was, this was the hottest I've ever been. It was 38 degrees one day, packed into a tiny room, no AC, no fan, no nothing. And you got to stand up there and, and like give a message and encourage these guys. And they're fine. They're all wearing like, they look like I do. And I'm just, I'm wearing this too. And I'm so hot. It's the first time in my life I've ever actually sweat through my pants. Like the, the, water, the sweat was coming down my jeans and like it was wet. And people were like looking at me like, what's wrong with that guy? So hot. But they, they just put up with anything because they're so excited to meet and to gather and to hear good news together. And so what, one of the big things that I'm always inspired by is that evangelism is the task of the whole church. It's not a program. It's not the job of a pastor. It's, it's the local people who say, man, this is good news. It's changed my life and I want it to change other people's lives. And so I'm going to invite my family and my friends and my neighbors. I'm going to open up my home and then I'm going to invite my pastor to come and to share good news. It's amazing. Do we need to change the batteries here or should I just switch to a mic? I'll keep going for a bit. I'll switch to a mic if I need to. So uh, here's a business. Some of, the, some of the pastors, they actually have side businesses. And they do this for two reasons. First of all, they don't want to become dependent on foreign support. And this is really good. We really encourage the guys that we support. It's short-term support. We don't want you to become dependent on North American funds. And so you need to find other ways to generate income. And um, so that's the first reason. The second reason is when you run a business, you are able to reach a different um, demographic of society. And so... Uh, the guy in the middle there beside me, his name is Dilbog, and he is a great church planter, but he's also a great businessman, and he set up this business, and I went to visit him. It's, it's a business. They teach English. They teach computers. They teach beautician. They teach a whole bunch of things that I didn't even know about, and so uh, this is their staff and their students, and through his business, he's able to reach other business people, and he has a great reputation in the local society. Uh, Christians, I was asking around about Christian businessmen, and they are trusted they're honest, they're hardworking, they have a great reputation. Uh, Dilbog here, he has started a one week, once a week prayer meeting with, with his business, through his business in, in the building for students and staff. And they're not all Christians, but he said that I'm a Christian and if you want to be prayed for and if you want to come and hear the good news, come and do this. And so when, when I showed up here and visited these guys, they're all really excited to see us and some were Christians. 
Some weren't Christians, but uh, they were excited, and, and Dilbog has a great reputation. Um, and so, a lot, of the, a lot of the church movement in India is actually happening among the poor. And so, in India, there is very much a caste system. And so, if you're, if you're, if you're reaching the poor, uh, you're doing a good thing, but it's, a hard, it's harder to reach the next levels of society, like the people in business and the wealthier people. And so, Christian pastors are cluing into this, and they're starting to set up businesses so that they can expand their outreach past just serving the poor, but they can also help uh, reach business people. And it's working, and business people are seeing... The, the effects of good Christian business being done, and they're hearing good news, and they are joining the church as well. My friend, Balbir, he's been running a business for quite a while, and he also runs a, a small network of churches, uh, eight church planters under him. And through his business, he's gained a great reputation among the business community and great relations. And this Christmas, he told me, they made homemade Christmas cakes, and he went out and passed it out to all of his business friends along with the New Testament. And this was his way of reaching people uh, in his demographic of society. And so they use business as a means for ministry. That business serves ministry. They are ministry-minded people using business as a means to help engage in what they have felt God has called them to do. And it, it's inspiring. And this is a direction we're actually moving with a lot of our guys. Where we're telling them, we want to help you set up small businesses so that you can reach more people. And that you can become less dependent on foreign funds. Which is obviously a very healthy thing. I'll show the next picture. So here's a, here's a church we visited. This is an annual convention. It happens uh, once a year. So we happen to be there. The guy who's preaching is my friend Belbir. I, I stay at his house all the time. This is a gathering of five churches. Uh, his network churches. And they come into the city and they come for a two-day convention. So there's over a thousand people here. When I visited Belbir five years ago, all of his churches were 20 or 30 people large. And now it's over a thousand people. And he works with uh, four other pastors who are also planting churches in nearby villages. If you look out into that crowd, over 95% of those people are brand new Christians. They have accepted the faith for the very first time. They are first generation Christians. We went around asking, asking with a show of hands, how many of them can read? You'd see maybe two or 3% of them put up their hand. So the majority of people that are coming to these churches are illiterate. And then you ask how many of them have a Bible, and it was only, it was about 50% of the people that could read. And so there's a huge need in India right now for, uh, for literacy and for, you know, just getting uh, Bibles out there. I was amazed at the churches, that the only people owning Bibles was the pastor and a few of his key leaders. No one even had access to Bibles. And so one of the things that we're going to do is um, raise more funds so we can just get Bibles into people's hands and then help them read it. Uh, such a huge thing there. But again, you can just kind of see the crowd of people and it's passionate. These guys, they show up and they, they pray and worship for three hours before the message. And then the message is like an hour long and then they're not doing more prayer and worship. And then at the end of the service, they come on up and they're just, they, they are asking for prayer and God is doing great things and the church is growing. It's so incredibly encouraging. Uh, Balbir's mom lives uh, in the same area. She wakes up at 4 a.m. every morning goes to the local church. Belbir's the one guy that actually has a church building. Opens up the doors, turns on Christian music, and invites the community to come in and pray between 4 and 6 a.m. every day. And they pray for the church planting movement. And this is a story that I heard over and over again. The questions that I would always ask is, how is your church growing so fast? And how are people coming to Christ so rapidly? And there's obviously a number of factors, but the biggest one that they always said is prayer. We pray. 
We pray and we ask God to open up the doors. We pray and ask God to soften the hearts. We pray for evangelism to happen and for people to come to faith, for people to come and join the church. And so there's such a dedicated commitment to prayer. It's inspiring. Next one. This is my friend, Boonti. Uh, Boonti has a radical story. He was rough. It's, and it's a story of transformation. He was into gangs. He was into drugs. He was into drinking. He was stealing things. He was into crime. Like he was a really rough guy and ran in a very rough crowd. His story of one is one about eight years ago. He had a dramatic conversion. The conversion happened because of his wife. And his wife had a really um, amazing healing experience and the demonic oppression um, releasing. And so he actually came to realize that God is the one true living God. And he gave up his life of crime and, and all the things that he was caught up in. And he dedicated his life to Christ. He went to school to become a pastor. And now he started a church in the community that he grew up in. And so everybody knew him as like this really rough alcoholic guy who beat his wife, mean to his kids, like a real rough guy. And he comes in and he plants a church in this community. So one of the fastest growing churches we have in our network is over 300 people. And it's pl he planted it two years ago. And people are just coming in droves because he's preaching the word and people are seeing for the first time that this is, that God is the one true living God. There's lots of stories of healings, lots of stories of miracles. But Boonti says the biggest thing that he does is he just preaches truth and people are starving for truth. They want to know who is God? Who is the real God? Who is the living God? In India, there are many, many different gods. It's not really a question of if there, is there a God. That's kind of the question our friends in Canada are typically asking, right? In India, they're not asking, is there a God? They're asking, which God? And they need evidence that God, that, that our God is the one true God. And that evidence is happening through healings and through miracles and through truth-telling and through transformation, through transformation of people like Bunti. I'll show you his land. So this is his land. We, we helped him purchase a piece of land. Uh, we're working on trying to get him a building, but that's going to take a while. So this is what they do. They wake up at 4 a.m. on Sunday mornings, his team, and they set up this tent. And they cram 300 plus people into this tent. And that's what a typical Sunday morning looks like there. Uh, in India, you got monsoon season, so life is really difficult in monsoon season for them. Oftentimes, they can't meet. Lots of people have actually left the church because it's so irregular because of rains, and so this is actually uh, one of the tough ones for them, but the really uh, committed people will meet in the rain anyways. The one time I went to this church, unfortunately, it was raining so hard that they couldn't meet outside, and so we squeezed into a room, and so they, they had hundreds of people squeezed into like a, a house, and lots of people just had, got turned away because they couldn't fit in there, but this, they are all new believers, and many of them told me their stories, and they're all stories like Bounty's stories of, you know, I was a drug addict, I was an alcoholic, I had no hope, I had no meaning, and then I found Jesus, and my life was transformed, and it was just like story after story of people saying, I finally met the one true God, and now I know what the meaning of life is, and I am saved. And they're passionate, intense people. Uh, this guy, he faces persecution. When I was there six months ago, he told me about his land, and he said a group of people would dump their garbage. Here, I'm going to switch to a mic here. All right, how's that? So they would dump their garbage right in front of the land and it would be stinky and gross and they were trying to deter people from coming and worshiping. Well, as you can imagine, it didn't work. People still came. So Bunti was telling me about this and so I asked him, 
I said, uh, Bunti, what about these people who were persecuting six months ago? I don't see any garbage. Last time I was there, I saw the heap of garbage. It was pretty gross. And this time I didn't see it. And I said, what happened to those people who were persecuting you and trying to uh, distract you from doing church? He says, those people, they knew me when I was a kid. They knew how rough I was. And though they didn't like me planting a church here, they've observed my life and they've seen that I am actually a different person and now they respect me and they don't dump garbage anymore. And I'm like, do they come to your church? He says, no, they don't. They're not there yet, but they stand at the road and they watch every Sunday morning. So they don't come into the tent, but they stand and they watch. And do you know what did it? They saw the transformation of Bunti. He went from a rough, violent, lost man to a man who is now transforming the community through the message of Christ. Right? He, it's, it's his life that has made the impact, that has made the difference. He told me a really cool story. He said, um, if, you, if you don't mind just going back one, Carlene, you can see the land's kind of out in a field. And he says one night, um, people, uh, people that were opposing them lit a fire back in the field. And in the morning, the fire got so big and the wind was racing down towards their tent. And so all the people were like freaking out and like running out of the tent. And the fire came through the field, hit the tent and wrapped around the tent, but didn't go into the tent. And that gave him enough time to get enough water to get, to get, the, to get the fire out. It's an amazing miracle, but I think what strikes me even more is that miracle of transformation because that's really what is transforming and changing lives. And so people, these neighbors, these people of opposition are saying, you must truly worship the one true living God. And I'm actually seeing a difference in your life. And that makes me want to take it seriously. One more story here. This is my friend Deepak in Delhi. Um, Delhi's a city of 33 million people. There's not a lot of Christian influence. And so these guys are planting churches in and, in and throughout Delhi. And they, they, one of the churches they planted is in, the, in a Nepalese refugee community. So people from Nepal who came down from the earthquake and they went in there into that community and they planted a church and just loved these people and cared for these people. And the church has come up. He sent me a WhatsApp picture and then I actually talked to him about it when I was there. Um, there was a family and their elder, eldest gal was lost. I don't know how you lose your daughter, but she was gone for a year. They didn't know where she, they didn't know where she was. And they were looking for their, her, their daughter. And they went to the police and the police couldn't do anything. And they went, they went to other religions. They went to witchcraft. They tried everything. They spent all their money trying to find their daughter and nothing worked. And then they came to Deepak and the church and Deepak and the church just prayed. And they prayed that the daughter would be found. And guess what happened? The girl was found a few days later and has rejoined the family. And the family is obviously now a Christian and is, is declaring this is the one true God. Nothing else works. And yet God shows up in miraculous and profound ways. And it is the presence of the local church, the, present of the, the presence of the local Christians who are courageous and bold enough to pray such a bold prayer. Your daughter's been lost for a year. Well, let's just pray for her. And they do, and they really believe that God's going to show up and do something, and he does. It's amazing. 
Every time I go to India, um, I feel like God gives me a passage to preach. Uh, I'm always asked to share and to encourage pastors and to encourage the church. And this time around, it was really clear that uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 was the passage that I was supposed to camp on this trip. And so I want to share this passage with you this morning as a way to uh, bring scripture into what I'm talking about. So um, this is a Sermon on the Mount. It's such a well-known passage. It's Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is having this really important conversation with his disciples. Disciples. This is his most famous sermon that he preaches. And so he looks, I'm going to read it here, he looks at his disciples. And there's many other people, but the focus is his disciples. And he says this, you are salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give it light, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to make just a few observations. Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. This is a message to those who choose to follow Christ. And it's a message for us today too. For those of us who have chosen to follow Christ, this is a message for us too. It's a statement of, an, of identity. Jesus says to his disciples and he says to us, this is who you are. You are light. You are salt. He doesn't say you ought to be. He doesn't say you should strive to be. He doesn't say work towards being. He says, you are. This is fundamentally, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christ follower, this is your identity. This is your call. It's a radical statement on so many levels. For the Jewish people who would have heard that for the very first time, they would have associated these terms, um, these identity statements with the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. They would have associated it with Jerusalem itself. They may have associated it with the Torah, which is the Old Testament, or the Pharisees. Those are all common uh, um, metaphors for, for those categories. But Jesus flips it all on its head and he says, it's not those things that are light. It's not those things that are salt. It's you. It's you as disciples of me, as disciples of Christ, you are salt and you are light. The metaphors are pretty clear, but we're going to walk through them here uh, briefly. Salt was incredibly valuable in the ancient world, and there was a few primary qualities that um, the people would have associated with salt. The first one, and we would do the same, would be salt adds flavor to food, right? When your food is bland, what do you do? You add spice, you add salt, and salt brings out the flavoring of the food. Back then, I'm not, so, I'm not sure so much now, but back then, salt added fertilizer to the ground. It actually helped the ground be more productive and, and bring about the crops. So the metaphor is pretty obvious. You know, as salt, we are to help enrich the world around us. We are to help add flavor to the world around us through our words, through our actions, through our transformation, through the joy that we exhibit, through our thankfulness, through the hope that we have. We are salt in the world around us. Salts also acts as a preservative. When I went hunting with my buddies back when I lived in the Kootenays, I don't do so much now, but they would always bring salt with them because it's pretty hot in September where we hunted and if they got an animal, they didn't want the meat to go bad before they could pack it out. So what do you do to stop meat from going bad? You rub salt in it, right? You get salt to actually get in there and it preserves it. It stops the meat from going bad. And people would do this a lot more before refrigerators. It was a pretty common practice. It, it helps stop food from going rotten. It's a preservative. I think the application is pretty clear. We are to have a, preserving, a preservative influence in the world so that it doesn't go bad. When the meat goes bad, we ask ourselves, where's the salt? When the world goes bad, we should be asking ourselves, where are the Christians? 
Where are the Christians? We preserve goodness and truth and beauty. We keep things from, growing, from going rotten in our world. Perhaps the most obvious application here is that salt exists for food. Christians exist for the world. We are to be engaged. We are to be active members of our world and to add these preservative and these flavoring qualities to our world. That is who we are called to be. Salt, a centimeter away from food, is useless. It actually needs to get into the food, right? What good is a salt shaker if you're not actually putting it on your food and adding flavor? It needs to get in there. Its main mission is to penetrate food. As, as our Christians, we're not here for ourselves. Our main mission is to penetrate this world and to preserve it and to add flavor to it and point the world to Christ, to stand up against those things that oppose goodness, uh, beauty, and truth. We are to be actively involved in the world around us. And this is where I think our Mennonite brothers and sisters have gone a little bit astray, some of them. We have some ministries in old Mennonite colonies still, and there are actually a lot of them still out there in Belize, in Bolivia, and Mexico, and they try their hardest to get away from the world. They say the world is bad, the world is corrupt, we want nothing to do with the world, we're going to go set up a colony in the bush and stay away from everybody, and no cell phones and no rubber tires, and just let's get away from them. But as I read the scriptures, I just go, I don't think that's what God calls us to. God calls us to be actively engaged. God calls us to participate so that we can influence the world. Let's stop being so afraid of the world influencing us. Let's be influencers of the world. This is what it means to be salt, right? We're not called to retreat into communities. Even Jesus said, be in the world, just don't be of the world. He didn't say retreat from the world. He said, be in the world. What good is salt if it's not penetrating the food? This is our role as Christians. Right, I get nervous when I see Christians retreating from the world and they're seeking to live in a Christian-only bubble. And sometimes I think Christians are more concerned about how the world is influencing us and we're not asking the right questions. We should be asking the questions, how are we influencing the world? Because we have been, we've been given the greatest message of all. We're the influencers. That's what it means to be salt. Let's talk about light for a second. Oh, well... I should mention this. There actually is a pretty stern warning here, right, about salt. How can it be made salty again if it's no, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled afoot? If we're, not, if we're not living this out, what's the point? Jesus is saying that you are salt, and if you're not living this out, what's the point? Right? It's a stern warning. We who call ourselves Christ followers, we are to look different, and we are to be different, to live out this identity that we have been given. Light of the world. In the ancient world and in the Bible, light was connected to knowledge, truth, revelation, and love. Anyone that had the light had these qualities. Knowledge, truth, revelation, and love. We know the nation of Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles, right? You read through the Old Testament. That was the point of Israel, is to be a light to the Gentiles. And we know that they failed for the most part. And the prophets talked a lot about the fact that they failed in their in their light-giving qualities, and God sent them off into exile. And who was the next person that declared themselves to be the light? It was Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he says, I am the light of the world, which makes this passage even more profound, because Jesus, as the light of the world, then looks at his followers, his disciples, and he says, you are the light of the world. Your role is to represent God to the nations around you. Your role is to be my ambassador, to represent these things that light represents this is your call now. The obvious quality of light is that it penetrates darkness. It exposes evil. If you're lost in the woods, 
what is the thing you want the most? A flashlight. So you can see where you're going, right? And that's what we're supposed to be. A flashlight, light in the world. What good is our light if it's covered? Why would anybody put a bowl on a lamp? We're meant to be out there. We're meant to be fully present in our world, representing Christ to those around us. Our lives should be like light to the, to the world around us. In our marriages, are we light to people around us? In our parenting, are we light to people around us? In the way that we raise our kids, are we light? In the way that we spend our holidays and spend our money, are we being light? Are we being salt? Are we representing something different than, than what this world sees? Are we representing Christ well? Through our lives, people should ask, why are you like that? Why, why do you make those choices? Why do you do those things? Which is the end of this passage. What is the purpose of our call? Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is the point. The point isn't to put our lives on display. The point is to put the goodness of God on display, but it's our lives that point to the goodness of God, right? That as we are living out this identity of salt, as we're living out this identity of light, we put God on display and we point other people to God, not to ourselves, but people should look at us and the lives that we live and then reflect back to God and go, there's something up with those guys and how they choose to live. And it points to the goodness of God. Everything we do directs attention to God. So I talk a lot about the world, uh, about the word missional, and I and I love the word, because we are called to live missional lives, and that is what this passage and so many other passages in the Scripture talk about. Mission is not just something that we do overseas. Missions is not just something we do for one or two weeks or two months. Mission is our lives. Every day, our life is a mission. When you go to school, you are on mission. When you are at work running a business, you are on mission. When you're at home raising your kids, you are on mission. When you are, when you are on the pack, you are on mission. When, what, wherever God has placed you, you are on mission because you are salt and you are light and you represent Christ where you go. God's mission is to redeem the broken world that we find ourselves in. This is a world that he deeply loves. This is a world that he sent his son to die for and to redeem, and he invites us into that. He invites us into this great mission that he is on. It's absolutely amazing. We get to participate with God as he loves and cares for this world and is in the process of redeeming it. We get to participate with him. So when we choose to follow Jesus, First of all, he addresses our own brokenness and then sets us right with him. And then he fills us with the spirit. And then he calls us to participate, to engage in the mission. And we are invited into this, which is why this passage is so profound. You are salt. You are light. Not you should be, you ought to be, you should strive towards this. It is you are. This is fundamentally your identity. And I would say this sums up what I see in India. Christians are genuinely being salt and light. And because of that, the church is exploding. The church is growing rapidly. And it's, in, it's inspiring to see. Through their outreach, their friends and their families, through cottage prayer meetings, through their neighbors, through their businesses, through living transformed lives, through, through their courage, through prayer, the church is exploding and people are coming to faith. When we find Jesus, we find hope. We find value. We find true love, true life. And then we get to offer this to others. We get to point others to Jesus. It's an amazing message that we carry with us. I want to put up a few more pictures there for you. This is Raul, the guy who is smiling. Um, 
our last three days we spent in a place called Agra, and Agra is um, uh, it's a there's a lot of opposition there to Christianity. It is a Hindu fundamentalist hotbed, and so they are really trying to stamp out Christianity there. Did you know that that uh, India has made it to the top ten now of most persecuted countries? I'm not something to be proud of, but persecution is growing, but the church is also growing. It's amazing how that happens. Uh, Raul comes from a high caste Brahmin family. So if you know anything about the caste system in India, there are many castes. The top caste is the Brahmins, and he comes from this. So he, he was given everything, social status, money, everything, and yet he was lost, and he was sad, and he had no hope, and he wanted to commit suicide. He tried to commit suicide three times. He didn't know what the point of living was. His life was empty. I heard his story. And then his friend whom he respected, told him, you should go to church. You should go hear good news. Raul went to church. He liked what he had to hear. And he picked up a Bible and he read through the Bible and he became convinced that God is the one true God. And he says that the day that he accepted Christ, the day that he decided to follow Jesus for real, he said he was overcome with joy and with peace. And that is, that is his testimony over and over again. And I heard this from many, many other guys, uh, other people who said, I was lost and hopeless. And when I found Christ, I was overwhelmed by joy and peace. Those are the two words that came up over and over again. And Raul doesn't look like a guy who tried to commit suicide three times. He's happy and he's full of joy and he's passionate. And he's, he went to school. He's planted a church in Agra. It's not growing quite as fast as the other ones, but that's fine. It's a bit more of a difficult situation, but he is courageous. He's received lots of opposition. He told me one time there was a gang of 40 people outside of his home telling him to stop doing what he's doing. He says, I won't stop. He says, I found joy and peace and you can too. That's what he said to them. And they went away because typically these, these mobs, they try to intimidate weak people. And if you show weakness, they'll get you. Raul stands up for himself and he's courageous and they left him alone. He says, you can find joy and peace too. He's so passionate about the gospel. He's so passionate about the life change that's happened in his own life. Uh, This is the church. Um, We were there on a weekday, so it wasn't a Sunday morning church, so so not many people could go there. But you can kind of get a sense of the, the size of the room. It's tiny. On a Sunday morning, they squeeze 50 people into this room. I don't know how they do it. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't fit as number 51. It is absolutely amazing. And yet, so I think we were there on a Wednesday or Thursday night, and those who could came. And um, you can see it's full of kids and full of youth. This is a very young movement, and, uh, and they're passionate. And the guy in the back in the yellow shirt told us his testimony, and it was a radical testimony of... Um, Uh, of healing and transformation. Uh, I could go on and on about these stories, but it's just amazing how these churches uh, grow up in such, in in places of such opposition, and yet people are finding joy and hope and peace, and they're not, they're not going to back down. Uh, This was our last day, and again, um, church community, it wasn't a Sunday morning, I think on a Sunday morning it's even more full. If you look there, there's actually not many men, it's because they were working on a Sunday morning, it looks different, and there's a lot of widows. This small church, led by one of our pastors, at the end he handed out, I think it was 27 gifts to widows. This church has grown through the ministry of caring for widows. In India, there's no welfare system or anything like that. And so if you're a widow, you don't have a husband to look after you. And lots of times your children won't look after you. And so you're in a bit of trouble if you're a widow. And so this church has really grown in its um, charity towards widows. And people have caught on to this and seen, hey, this church cares about its community. This church is doing something to look after those that are most vulnerable. 
This is Sri Trend. He's another guy that we've started supporting a year ago. This is what he does every morning and every afternoon. These are children that can't go to school. Um, they live in the slums, and school is just not an option for them. And so he provides education for them uh, Monday to Friday. And through this, the community around him are starting to warm up to the idea that, hey, Christians are actually doing something here. They're helping. They're addressing the needs. And Christianity is slowly gaining a reputation. And I've seen churches like this. Many churches actually start like this. And as you reach the children, the parents start warming up to it, and then churches are planted. And so we, we've actually helped build a, several schools uh, because through education and development, people realize that Christians care, and they want to do something, and then they're, they hear the good news of Jesus, and the church grows I think that's all I've got. Yep, that's all I got. So I want to end with this Colossians and First Peter to wrap it up. Paul says in Colossians, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Seasoned with salt. That your conversations would be full of of flavor and preservative and truth and goodness and beauty and that in your words that you would just you would speak boldly about what is important to you and and who you are first peter 2 live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day he visits us again that people see our lives and they glorify god it's not about putting ourselves on display it's about putting god on display but it starts as they see our lives and they see a life of, that is transformed, a life that is different, that they see the good deeds and they go, why are you like that? And they start asking questions. You, if you are following Christ here today, you are salt. You are light. This is, your, this is fundamentally your identity. This is who you are and what you've been called to be. And so I want to encourage you this morning. I hope you've been inspired by these stories that I've told inspired by the church that is growing in India, by what your brothers and sisters in Christ are so boldly and courageously doing in a country that is so far removed from where we are, and yet the church is growing. Hope that you're encouraged and inspired and maybe challenged. I walk away from India every time, every trip challenged in my own faith. Challenged that I need to pray more. Challenged that I need to be more courageous. Challenged that I need to declare uh, more fully this great news that we have, this great news that Jesus changes lives and that he is the one true living God. And so, yeah, be salt, be light. This is who we're called to be. Amen. I invite the band to come up and I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray for our brothers and sisters in India right now and around the world. God, thank you for your love and thank you that you call us to great things and you, you give us the identity that we need to do these things, Lord. I pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in India, especially, Lord, as they face persecution and opposition, Lord, that you would give them courage and that they would stand up. I pray that your church would grow. God, I pray that your kingdom would come in India, that your kingdom would come around the world. Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come right here in Lake Country. I pray that we would be people that represent you well, that we would live out our faith in every aspect that we find ourselves in, Lord, that we would live it out and that people would wonder why, who, why are we the way we are? 
And God, we want to point to you. We want people to see the goodness of God and the glory of God in our lives. And so I pray that you would fill us all with your spirit and give us the courage and the boldness that we need to be these people that you call us to be, Lord. For the sake of your kingdom, the sake of your glory, and the sake of your church, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Chris.